course, what uh, both Neil and I have shared through this series of messages is that what we have here in John 17, often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus, is not so much an instruction manual on how to pray, but really a look at the heart of God. Jesus cries out to the Father uh, briefly for himself. You have to remember, uh, Jesus is hours away from his arrest and ultimate crucifixion. Uh, It is a very stressful time. He's about to enter the Garden of Gethsemane where he will uh, pray that anguishing prayer as he uh, will then be arrested uh, and put on trial and uh, sentenced to death. It's, uh, it's It's a stressful time in the life of our Savior and Lord. And yet in that moment, Uh, He prays the bulk of his prayer for his disciples. And as we have seen, not only for them, but for those who will come to know him through their testimony, which uh, is us. Uh, We are those who have come to know Jesus Christ uh, through the apostolic teaching of the gospel. Uh, And so, again, Jesus is praying for us. And he expresses the desire of his heart for his church, for his people. Again, for you and for me, I, I, I love to refer to us as the church. We're the church. We're the body of Christ. But I also want you to always understand that these words are words that Jesus prays for you personally. All right, These characteristics, these marks that we have mentioned as we've worked our way through these uh, verses of Scripture are marks or characterizations that ought to be true in your life. Uh, of course, he's mentioned several. Joy. Uh, and, and I just want to ask you, would, would you say that your life is characterized by joy? We ought to be a happy bunch. Uh, you know, the reality is we serve a happy God. Um, I, I told you last week or week before last that I'm reading a book by Randy Alcorn entitled Happiness. And I didn't realize until reading this book uh, that there is a lot of current teaching and, and past teaching that uh, has a hard time portraying God as being happy, as if, as if that's not a good enough word. Joy or blessed are words that are often used in our, our Scripture. But let me tell you, God is a happy God. He's been happy throughout all eternity, happy in his relationship in the Godhead with the God the Father, and God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God is happy, and so as, as God's people, and we often see this concept of joy being promoted within the church, we ought to be joyful. Our God is a joyful God. He's a happy God. We ought to be a joyful, happy people. Jesus prays that we would be full of joy, and not only joyful, but holy. Uh, holiness is one of the issues that Jesus prays would, would be experienced within the body of Christ and characterized by the body of Christ. Truth uh, is another concept that Jesus prays for. We ought to be a people of truth, determined to know the truth. Again, to be set free by the truth that we have come to know. We ought to be a people on mission. God has entrusted to us not just eternal life, but the message of eternal life. And he has sent us into the world, the scripture says here, even as he sent his son Jesus to proclaim the gospel. There are so many in our world today that are lost and undone. And it's only the message of the gospel that will set them free. We need to be a people on mission. And then, uh, of course, unity. We ought to be united 
in our service to the Lord and to one another. Uh, And now as he concludes his prayer, he's going to add one final mark. Perhaps we can say the, uh, the defining mark of the church. Uh, and and that, is, that is love. He prays that we might be filled and overflowing with love. Uh, and again, not a new concept that he introduces here. Uh, back in John 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you may love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And he says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it could be argued, and I believe it's a a good argument to to have, that love is the supreme mark, the defining mark of the church. I mean, Paul would later write the the letter to the Corinthians, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter. And after all of that wonderful uh, dialogue that he gives us concerning love, he ends with these words in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, he says, So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. So, let's read together just the last two verses of John 17, verses 25 and 26. Scripture says this, Jesus concludes his prayer. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Let's pray, and we'll look at these words together. Father, we thank you this morning, first of all, for the the word of God. Lord, we are so privileged to have your word uh, readily available to us. Lord, uh, everyone in this church this morning, everyone watching from home, we all own copies of the Bible, multiple copies, multiple translations, and again, we thank you for that. And, and I pray, Father, that as those who have your word so readily available, Lord, that we would not allow ourselves to become complacent as far as our interaction with it. Lord, help us to be a people devoted to your word. And, and I just thank you again for these who gather each week here in this place to hear the word of God, Lord. And, and I pray uh, to be challenged, changed by that word. And so that's our prayer today, Father. We need you to speak to our hearts. And I pray, Father, that you would just zero in this morning on this issue of love. Uh, help us to be honest with ourselves as we consider the love of God. Is it truly within us? Uh, is it being experienced among us? Am I a person who loves you and, and, and loves others? Uh, I pray that we would allow the Spirit of God to, to show us the truth of those questions in our own lives. So, Father, we just again thank you for who you are and for what you will do even this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 25, really more than being a request, as so much of this prayer has been, it is a, it is a statement. Jesus makes a statement. Uh, of course, he refers to God as his righteous Father. Oh, 
righteous Father. It's not often that we hear uh, Jesus referring to God uh, in this way, but indeed, our God uh, is a righteous God. And so Christ addresses him as such. And he addresses him as Father. Again, we become so accustomed to hearing that, that word Father that it doesn't trouble us, and it really shouldn't trouble us. But let me tell you, uh, to the Jews in Jesus' day, this was a troubling way to, for them uh, when they heard Jesus address God as, as my Father. Uh, they just didn't believe that anybody had the right uh, to use such familiar language as that. Um, but, uh, but we do, don't we? God's our Father, uh, our righteous, holy, heavenly Father, uh, we should be familiar with him, just as he is so familiar with us. So this, this verse is a statement, uh, and it is a statement really concerning the context in which we, the church, will carry out the ministry that God has entrusted to us. He, he, he simply says, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you are sent, or that you have sent me. And, and so what Jesus is simply saying, he is, he is stating that we who have been entrusted with the message of the gospel are being sent out uh, into a world that does not know God. Now let me tell you, if you, as many have done over the years, if you were to take a poll, do a survey, and you were to ask people that you bumped into throughout any given day, do you know God? Do you know God? You know, I believe that the vast majority of those people would answer that question, yes. Don't you? I mean, most people claim to have a knowledge of God. Yes, I know, I know God. But I believe the reality is, as Jesus states here, he says, look, the world, the world does not know you, Father. Most people in our world know something about God. But few, I believe, really know God. So that's the world that we're sent out into, a world that knows a little something about God, enough to satisfy them, but a world that really doesn't know the Father. And so I would say that to you, even as Jesus makes that statement here in the hearing of his disciples, there is so much opportunity for us to share the gospel, to, to let people know about God, to tell them who God is, what God has done for them, uh, the same world that God sent Jesus into is the world that Jesus has now sent us into. And this is what Jesus says about that world that knows about God but doesn't really know God. He says this back in chapter 1 of John, verses 10 through 13. The scripture says this, he was in the world, Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We have been entrusted with the message of the gospel. We know that message, don't we? Because it's true of our own lives. I know what Jesus has done for me. I was there when he did it. And I have the joyous 
privilege of sharing with anybody who's willing to listen that what Jesus has done for me, he'll do for them. So we go into the world with this message of salvation, the good news of Jesus Christ. And, of course, knowing that, uh, for the most part, the people that we will share with do not know God, even if they claim to know something about God. So Jesus says, Father, even though the world doesn't know you, I know you. And, and we can make that same claim today, right? Can you not make that claim? Can you not say with certainty, Father, I know you? We ought to be able to make that claim. Jesus makes that claim. I know you. Now, of course, the difference between the claim that Jesus makes and the claim that we makes is, it make is this, that, that no one, none of us knows the Father like Jesus knows the Father. Again, back in John chapter 1, what does the Scripture say concerning Jesus? Referring to him as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And that, that word beginning could be translated in the beginning of the beginning of the beginning. And we could just keep adding those beginnings. Jesus was there with the Father in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Scripture says. And the Word was God. All of that referring to Jesus Christ. Who could possibly know God better than Jesus knows God? No one knows the Father like Him. And the point of all of this, I believe, is that Jesus is saying, look, it's me that can truly reveal the Father. It's me, as He's about to say, that can make the Father Known Only Jesus can open blinded eyes. Only Jesus can soften hardened hearts. Only Jesus can do that. There is no other Savior. We've talked about that already in our passage of Scripture. The, there, there is no one else who can save those who are lost and undone, who do not know the Father. Only the one who knows the Father like no one else. And so when Jesus makes this statement, he makes a statement of hope and encouragement. There is hope for the people that do not know God. We need to understand that. Do you know people that you feel like are just almost beyond hope? I know people like that. There have been people like that in my life. People that I came to the place that I thought, oh, they're, they're just never going to turn around. Let me tell you, Jesus says, I, I know you, Father, and that should give us hope that others can come to know God. Even those that we think are beyond hope, there is hope for those who do not know the Father, for those who walk in darkness, because Jesus knows him. And then he says this, and these, referring to his disciples, and again, I believe to us, all who have come to know Christ as a result of their testimony, these know that you have sent me. I hope that you have noticed, you can go through and count, I think there are about five different references in, these, in this chapter of knowing that Jesus is the one sent by God. I mean, you would think, oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you. But that's not what he says. He says, and these know that you have sent me. And again, I believe that that implies that we know God because we now know that Jesus is the one sent by God to reveal the Father to us. And all through this prayer, 
Jesus prays that others will come to know him as the one sent by the Father. Again, it's critical that we know that Jesus is the one, the only one sent by God. I know Neil mentioned a few weeks ago as he was talking about us being united in love and in ministry and and in spite of our differences. Uh, You know, there are theological issues that it's okay for us to have differing opinions upon, right? There are those issues that are not lying in the sand kind of issues, but, but this, this idea that Jesus is the one sent by God, that's a line in the sand kind of issue. There is no other Savior. There is no other one sent by God. There is salvation, the Scripture says, in no other name. So we need to know that. We need to be assured of that. It's critical that as we share the gospel, that we share that there is salvation in one only, and his name is Jesus. I mean, even Jesus said in John chapter 14, and we've referred to this already, when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father except through me. Throughout our world today, people who know a little something about God are trying to find peace or satisfaction or happiness through all sorts of things. They're even trying to find a right relationship with God through all sorts of things. There's only one way to the Father, through the one that he sent, Jesus Christ. He is the one who came to save us from our sin. Verse 3 of our, of our chapter says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent There is no other Savior. Eternal life is found only in Him. That's the message that we carry into an unbelieving world, that there is hope in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. And just as Jesus knows the Father, you and I can come to know the Father, and those that we proclaim the gospel to can come to know the Father. It ought to encourage us to hear Jesus make such a proclamation. And then Jesus does what He so often does in this prayer. Even as He's praying for us, He indicates that he is providing the very thing that he is praying for. He said, I have made known to them your name. I made known to them your name. So the question is, how can an unknowing world, an unbelieving world, an unholy world, a sinful world, how can can someone like that come to know God, well, and again, Jesus makes it clear. He has to make him known. And what Jesus had done throughout his life and what he was about to do through his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension back to the Father was to show the world who God really is. Again, we're talking about love, or we're going to conclude this message talking about love as Jesus concluded his prayer talking about love. If you want to know how much God loves you, all you have to do is look at the cross. You know, there are people all around the world that don't believe that God loves them. They don't believe anybody loves them, including God. But when we look at the cross, what God did for us by sending his son to die for us, to take our sin upon himself and to pay the price for that sin, to satisfy the wrath of God. There should be no doubt in any of our lives 
about how much God loves us. But you know, on a day-to-day basis, we tend to kind of lose sight of that, don't we? Because life happens to us. Bad things happen to us. We get hurt. We get sick. People say terrible things. Circumstances don't work out the way we expected or hoped that they would. And if we're not careful, it's easy for us to begin to doubt the love of God or the power of God in our lives to to make things right. Don't ever do that. God loves you. All you have to do is look at the at the cross, look at the one that God sent, the one who has made known to us the name of God. Nobody has ever revealed the Father like Jesus revealed the Father. Again, in, in, in chapter uh, or in verse 6 of this very chapter, Jesus said, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Jesus has made the Father known to us. That's why we're saved. That's why we've been born again. God opened our eyes that were at one time blind. He softened our hearts that were at one time hard towards God and toward the gospel. Jesus has made the Father known. Amen. Of course, he refers to the name of God, and we've, we've talked about this already too. The name of God refers to the nature of God. The attributes of God is the way that we would say it if we were doing a theological study. And we've done that here in this church. We've spent, I think, 21 or 22 weeks talking about the various attributes of God, and we just chipped away at the surface a little bit. God is so much bigger than we could ever imagine him to be, and Jesus has clearly shown us the Father. He's basically saying to God, God, I did what you sent me to do. I showed the people who you are and what you're like. That's what Jesus' life is, ministry. His crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension. That's what, that's what he did. He showed us the Father. He, he told us who God was. And, and again, how was Jesus able to do this? I mean, he was just a man too, right? Well, man, but he was God, the God-man. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he was able to show us the nature of the Father because, as it is written there, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Who better to show us the name, the nature, the attributes of the Father? That's why Jesus could say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So, Jesus has made this wonderful provision for us. The greatest need of our lives is to know God. But it was impossible unless one was sent to show us the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Eternal life comes to those who know the Father, and only Jesus could make him known. So we need to be thankful. Thank God for his marvelous provision, right? I'm so thankful that God sent his Son and that somebody cared enough 2,000 years later to tell me about him. Again, church, That's what God has sent us to do, to carry this wonderful message of Jesus, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ into the world. God continuing to provide for his people. So he says, 
I made them known. I made known to them your name. And then he makes this promise. I will continue to make it known. Did you know that every day the grace of God is being poured out on this world? Now, it's especially being poured out on his people. We, we recognize it, or at least we should. We recognize the grace of God being poured out upon our lives. We realize that there are things that God does for us that we don't deserve. It's his grace, his unmerited favor. And the fact that he is going to continue to make God's name known in this dark, sinful world is just a gracious promise. I mean, mankind's greatest need is to know God, right? So here, Jesus, again, promises to continue making the name of the Father known. He promises to continue to make known to those who are in darkness what God is like, that he's light and life. Jesus is going to continue to make that known. Again, as we think about the ministry that's been entrusted to us, isn't it wonderful to know that Jesus has promised us that he's going to continue to make the name of the Father known? I don't, I don't know about you, but I know that as a, as a preacher who stands here in this pulpit, and I'm sure Brother Neil would agree, what we want, what we pray for, why we spend time preparing is so that the Word of God will go forth in such a way that it will impact the hearts and lives of those who have come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, and it will reveal to others that they need to come to know God as Savior and Lord. That's what we pray. And verses like this, I will continue to make it known. What a comfort. What an encouragement. People, people all around us can be very resistant, very hesitant when it comes to the gospel. Again, nothing new. Paul, Paul warned Timothy of the world that he was being sent into. He, he said to Timothy, he said, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. That's the world that Timothy was sent into and charged to preach the word in season and out of season. To always be ready to share a gospel witness in church, that's the world that you and I have been sent into. But we go into that world knowing that Jesus has promised that he's going to continue to make the Father's name known. He's going to continue to open blinded eyes. He's going to continue to let people know who God is and how desperately they need him. So graciously, Jesus promises that he'll continue to call people out of darkness into his marvelous light. That ought to be an encouragement. It's an encouragement to me, I know. It ought to be an encouragement to all of us who have any desire at all to share the gospel. Do you know somebody in your life, somebody in your family, some friend, some neighbor, somebody at work, somebody at school? Do you know somebody who is lost and undone, who needs Jesus? Well, the great promise that Jesus makes here is I'm going to continue to make the Father's name known. There's hope for those who walk in darkness. And then all of this leads up to this final couple of phrases in this prayer. He said, I've made your name known. I will continue to make it known that. That's the, the purpose statement here. In order that. There's a, there's a reason that Jesus does all of this. 
And his glorious purpose is this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus prays that the very love with which the Father has loved him would be in us. Now think about that for a moment. When you think of the Father's love for you, do you think about it being the same love with which he's loved his son, Jesus Christ? See, we don't think we deserve that kind of love, right? We didn't live perfect lives. We didn't live sinless lives. We didn't die on the cross. We didn't love the way Jesus loved. We didn't share our faith the way Jesus shares his faith. Let me tell you, Jesus prays that the very love that God has loved him will be the love that is in us. We'll experience that same kind of love, that he himself would be in us. Those words, in them, they kind of have a, a double meaning here. They, they mean not only within, and you know that you are indwelt by the love of God, right? The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, comes to dwell within every born-again believer. So if you have turned from your sin, trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, the Spirit of God has come to live within you. So the love of God literally is in you. It's in you. And then, of course, it also means to be among them. This love that is within us is to make its way out. So Jesus is praying for two things. For an internal spiritual experience, the love of God in us. And for an external practical experience, the love of God among us. Again, he asks that we might be indwelt by this love, thus enabling us to love God, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to love the lost world that we live every day in. Love. So the question that we need to ask ourselves is this, is, is my life a life characterized by, and by the way, the word love in the New Testament, the primary word love is the word agape that we're all familiar with. And it's a, it's a word that speaks of a of a sacrificial effort given in behalf of others. So when God wants his love to be in us and, and that love to be demonstrated through our lives, the way that that, that kind of love is, is experienced, we experience through the sacrificial death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we too are to live lives of sacrifice, suffering, on behalf of others. Most of us don't readily volunteer for that kind of life. We're, we're way too much like the people that Paul describes to Timothy, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, lovers of others. But our lives are to be characterized by this kind of love, this kind of sacrificial Love that acts in behalf of others. And of course, we know, as we've said already, this prayer has been answered, right? I mean, this is God the Son praying to God the Father. This prayer is going to be answered. This kind of love is going to be in us. Jesus is going to be in us. Again, Paul writes to the church at Rome, 
And he says this, he says, God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So I believe what is really being said here is that love, this last definitive mark of the church, is what makes all the other marks of the church possible. I mean, isn't that what Paul said? I can be all these wonderful things, but if I don't have love, I'm nothing. That's what Jesus is saying to us here. You want to have joy? Well, love of the Father leads to joy. You love God, your life will be full of joy. You want to live lives of holiness? Love for the Lord Jesus leads to holiness. These are observations that James Montgomery Boyce made in one of his commentaries. If you, if you want to, to be a person of truth, then love for the Word of God leads to truth. You want to be a person on mission? Love for the world leads to mission. You want to experience unity in your life, in your family, in your church? Well, love for our brothers and sisters in Christ leads to unity. So love is the supreme mark of the church. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is my life characterized by this kind of love? John wrote in his first epistle, he said, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. One of the surest marks of the genuineness of your salvation is a love for God and a love for others. So that's the question I want to ask you today. Is God's love in you? Because if it is, you'll love him, you'll serve him, you'll obey him, you'll love your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you'll love the world enough to carry the message of the gospel to them, even at the great cost that it will demand sacrifice, suffering, perhaps even death. You know, Christians have died throughout the centuries in their attempt to carry the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world. And let me tell you, that is not a tragedy. It is a triumph. So church, do you love God? Do you love one another? If you can't say yes, wholeheartedly repent receive Christ as Savior